Well, hello everyone. My name is Dana Goldstein, and I'm your host for What Were You Thinking? A podcast that asks authors to share the story behind their story. Today, I'm talking to Christina Sweeney Baird, whose dystopian novel, The End of Men, examines a world where a virus kills 90% of the global male population. Now, before you roll your eyes, you should know Christina wrote this novel in 2018, long before COVID-19 became part of our landscape. She didn't set out to write a pandemic novel, as she'll explain. As the book was going to final edits in March of 2020, Christina herself contracted COVID and was fighting infection while she was writing about, well, a world fighting infection. Christina works as a corporate litigation lawyer in London. The End of Men is her first novel and has been published in 19 territories in 17 languages and the film rights have sold to a major US studio. She is currently working on her second novel. Join me as she answers the question, what were you thinking? And if you stick around to the end, Christina shares something not many people know about her. This is the book that I want to talk about because the book is uh, set five years into the future. So 2025 and a pandemic breaks out and sweeps the globe and takes out 90% of the male population. I mean, it was one of those kind of slightly spooky things where I had recently read The Power by Naomi Alderman, which I think like a lot of people, that book was the first piece of speculative fiction that I had read that really used speculative fiction to explore gender. And I thought, okay, so that's what the world looks at if women are physically more powerful than men. But like what happens if structurally you change the world very, very quickly in this intense way and you kind of remove most of the men from the equation, like what would change? What would stay the same? What would happen practically? Would the world keep going and how would it, how would it keep going? And I remember being in the library and having the idea of going like, what would the world look like without men? And that was the central question. And very quickly I realized, I mean, like I mean, almost immediately I realized that the way to kind of reverse engineer almost in the fictional world that happening in a feasible way was to have a pandemic you know I didn't want to write a story where it was just like you click your fingers and the men disappear and that's a mystery like I wanted it to feel real and believable um, it obviously now feels very real and believable that there would be a pandemic tell me about uh you say people are calling you Cassandra <laughs> <laughs> okay just a quick aside Cassandra was a princess of Troy who promised she would sleep with Apollo in exchange for the gift of prophecy. When Apollo came to collect, she turned him down with a snarky, how did you not see that coming? How'd that turn out for her? Not so good. Apollo cursed her so that her prophecies would never be believed. She was thought to be mad and irrational. She predicted the fall of Troy, and if anyone had listened to her, well we wouldn't have been able to see Brad Pitt in the 2004 movie wearing a leather skirt. It's one of those things where obviously you don't expect as a writer of speculative fiction, I certainly didn't, to gauge the distance between what you've written and, you know, real life. Um, and it, the timing was couldn't have been weird. I had the idea in 2018. I finished writing it and doing a rewrite for my agent in December 2019. And the book then went on submission to, to editors in January 2020 and sold and then the world changed I mean so it really was just the most bizarre thing where I wrote a book that obviously is not representative of this pandemic the you know the, the plague in the book is 
uh, it's called the plague in the book, is a much worse. I mean, it has a, it has a 90% mortality rate. Almost the entire kind of male population is wiped out and it only affects men. So I think that's why when a lot of readers have actually told me that the book makes them feel a lot better about the world we're living in. And I think that's because it's so much worse than, than COVID is. And also because it is immediately recognizably very different. My editor and I were going through the editing process of a book with a pandemic in it, just as a pandemic was sweeping the globe. I mean, you just couldn't like make it up. It was the weirdest thing. I read that you had to change the source of the of the virus. Yeah, so originally I had the book, in the book that the virus is started by a pangolin. A pangolin is an adorable scaly mammal that resembles a pine cone, except with a long sticky tongue that goes from its mouth down to its pelvis and claws that can rip into an ant or termite hill. Also, super cute little beady eyes. And that is not as weird as it sounds when I say it out loud, because if you research it, pangolins are the world's most trafficked animals. So when I was you know, writing this in 2018 and 2019, I thought actually a pangolin is probably the most feasible way that a pandemic would start. And there was quite a lot of public health literature that had people really being worried about um, live animal markets, about the pangolin trade, and kind of saying a panda, it's a matter of when, not if a pandemic is going to happen, which I blithely thought, not in my lifetime, I'm sure it's going to be fine. Um, but so yeah, that my editor quite rightly said, we need to change this. So here's the million dollar question. When the pandemic, when COVID spread across this globe, what were you thinking in the context of the book you were about to publish? I mean, it was obviously, it was just such a scary time, I think for all of us generally. And it was weird because in some ways the book was like my, you know, it's like such an important thing to my, like to my heart and soul and to my life. And back in March and April, 2020, we didn't know what was going to happen. You know, we didn't know if there was going to be a vaccine ever. We didn't know how many people were going to die. I mean, it was just, it was with hindsight, even now it feels kind of unimaginable, but it, it's what happened. So it was very, very odd. And I actually had COVID back in March, 2020. So I got it quite early. I remember just as I was getting scared about it, I ended up catching it. As we were working through the pandemic or the pandemic was working through the globe, we are searching out books and movies and um, stories about plague. Why do you think that is? I think it's a few things. I think that we always like to use fiction to help us process what's happening in the real world. And so anything that reflects our own experiences is something that is always going to, I think in some ways be just intriguing and, and interesting to us and helpful. And I think also that with a story, whether it's a film or a, you know, a book, you get a sense of resolution. There is a beginning, there is a middle, there is an end. You know, your, your characters, even if they don't get a happy ending, you get to find out what happens and then close the book. And so I think especially in early 2020, when we all had this massive uncertainty and we didn't have any resolution. And even now with, with the light, you know, is on at the end of the tunnel, but we're still kind of living this in the current kind of moment and in the present, I think it's very comforting to be able to read something and then see it through to the end and understand that actually everyone does recover and, you know, that you understand what's going to happen. And, and I think it's the same reason why generally dystopian fiction and thrillers are popular, especially I think when things are grim. I think the last, obviously, COVID has just thrown the world into a complete tailspin. But I actually think the last five years has felt like it's in a lot of flux. You know, there was Brexit in the UK, which has been a huge change. Trump was elected. You know, I feel like the news has just consistently been very intense. And I think there's been disproportionately more dystopian fiction that's been in the mainstream than there was before. And I think that's because when the world is scary, 
it is comforting actually to read a story that is about an even scarier world and then you get to finish it and know what happens and and kind of move on with your life so I, I don't think that it's that dystopian stories and their popularity are going to go anywhere anytime soon. But I do think it's important to myself and other people that a book about a pandemic doesn't feel exploitative. And so I think there's, I think that the kind of pandemic fiction that was written before the pandemic will kind of, I suppose, fulfill that role. The End of Men really makes us examine how our societies and communities are built. It was an interesting voyage for me when I was reading The End of Men to realize just how much of our infrastructure is dependent on men. Did anything catch you off guard in that process? Um, not caught me off guard per se, because I'd spent quite a lot of time, I'd spent about six months really thinking through what I was going to do with the book and how I was going to tell the story before I actually put pen to paper. But I think as I was writing it, and this, I would say that you can't write, the way you write a novel is by writing a novel. I think one of the things you have when you are looking at a story that has world building in it is that there's so many different layers. And that was definitely a surprise. You know, I would be writing, for example, there's a character called Dawn, who's a civil servant, and she's literally trying to keep like the UK functioning. And she keeps getting promoted because her seniors keep dying. And there's a point where she's talking about like electricians. And so the majority of electricians in the UK are men and she's like how on earth are we going to do this when I need to suddenly like have enough electricians to keep literally like street lights on and to keep like buildings lights on but the remaining kind of male and few female electricians that exist are already really really busy but I need them to train up you know kind of women to be electricians so there's enough people but they're already doing like 60 hours a week to have and she just kind of talks about it like it's a whack-a-mole problem and I think what I did find surprising as I was writing it was when you start thinking about it actually just how many different things within society are impacted by that um and so yeah it was kind of it was it was the ultimate thought experiment you know what would stay the same what would change and how on earth would you fix all of these problems what do you hope readers take away from the end of men i hope they take away from it a few things one i suppose the value of women and men you know that is something that i think is really through the book there is no misandry in the book and it really shows you hopefully especially through characters whose lives are changing and the, you know there's a huge amount of loss when this number of men die that men and women can and should kind of coexist I hope no one reads the book and thinks that I hate men because I really don't and I think though that showing you how the world would change really does shine a light on some of the structural inequality that we haven't made enough inroads into changing so I hope it does make people think about why certain jobs, for example, have disproportionate numbers of men or women doing them. What is it within society that makes us think that a job is more likely to be done by men or women? What, what is it that makes it so that even if it's 2021, that you still don't have teenagers, for example, thinking that they should, you know, we still have hardly any men becoming nurses and we still have hardly any women becoming electricians. Like what is, why is that, is that inherently problematic? I think that's a question, I think that's a genuine question. I, you know, I, I, the book is not necessarily a soapbox book I think what it does is it asks a lot of questions by showing you this fictional world and then it kind of lets you make up your own mind but I hope that it shows you this alternative and really makes you think about gender and and I suppose about how the world is structured and how maybe we could change things yeah and I think the the end message of of perseverance of the of humanity is wonderfully uplifting even as everything around us is completely falling apart that's something that's really important to me because I, I obviously 
it's kind of impossible for a book like this to have a happy ending per se because there is a lot of loss in the book but it was really important to me that ultimately it was hopeful and I do think that I'm very optimistic about people's resilience and ability to kind of recover and move forward so I'm really glad that that's something that stood out for you as well. How do you go from being a lawyer to being a writer? Have you always wanted to write? I did. And I always wrote. Um, I'm someone who I don't like to fail publicly. So I was very, very private about writing. And I still work full time as a lawyer. But I just always did it. Like I always tried to write novels. I always knew that I wanted to write novels. So all the way through my teens and my early 20s, I kept trying to write novels. I'd write the beginning and then I would kind of maybe get to like 10,000 words and not be able to get any further. And I used to beat myself up over it. And I'd think that I was just being lazy when I think with hindsight, I just didn't know enough. There's a reason why 19 year olds are not typically publishing novels. Um, And then I just kept going and trying. And then when I was 23, I had finally finished like my degree and law school and everything I needed to do to become a lawyer. And I, for me, that actually freed up a lot of brain space to not need to think about studying and academics anymore. Like all the exams were passed. I was officially a lawyer. Um, and I st- I went, right, I'm going to write a novel. Like, and I gave myself two years. So I wrote a first novel between the ages of 23 and 25. And it took two years. And that really was how I learned to write a novel. And I kept it secret. I literally only ever told my mom and two of my best friends that I was writing and just kind of kept plugging away at it but I yeah I always loved I always loved reading I think that's a big thing as well writers tend to have disproportionately loved reading I just constantly read as a child and then a teenager and then even when I was at university you know everyone kind of stops reading as much when they're not teenagers anymore but I kept reading all the time I'm 28 now and can't quite believe I'm published (laughs) have managed to do it happily not only published but you have they're developing a movie correct tell me about that Well, so I can't say too much, but the film rights have sold, which is really exciting. Um, And we're now in that long, hopefully not too long, but nonetheless, normally quite long process of trying to find kind of who's going to write it and who's going to produce it. Um, But yeah, it's really exciting. I think it would, I think quite visually when I'm writing, I kind of think about, you know, there's a scene in the book where two people are saying goodbye to each other, which... I think is one of the saddest scenes in the book. And I found it really hard to write. And I, you know, that I can see so clearly in my head like one of them in the hallway and one of them like walking up the stairs and so I I think that the book hopefully would make a really good tv show or film is the world building the scene writing or the dialogue which of those comes more naturally to you oh I think I, I, I can't really divide them up I suppose in that way I think that for me I think of it a bit like concentric circles so you know at the center of the circle you have this core idea. So when I'm writing speculative fiction, there is, you know, a core question, what the world look like without men, for example. And then I find that I think about the different characters that I need to tell that story. So for example, in End of Men, I needed to have the doctor who treats patient zero, Amanda McLean. I needed a virologist like Lisa Michael. I needed a civil servant to show like how countries try and function. There's Catherine who is in some ways more of an every woman at the beginning. You know, she doesn't have a special skill. She's just trying to keep her family safe and cope and recover. Um, And she later starts like telling the stories of the plague. So I think then I, I don't, when I have those characters, it's like, okay, so I'm now gonna throw those characters into the next concentric circle, build the world through their perspectives and show you what's happening through their points of view. Um, And then as I'm building them as people and these things are happening in the world, to me kind of, it's quite instinctive, I suppose, like what they will be 
saying and doing and feeling and inter you know they'll be in Catherine is interacting with her husband and her son and Amanda is interacting with like her colleagues at the hospital and you know Lisa has an assistant and and she's interacting with her wife so I think of it in that kind of expanding way I think layer upon layer is how I, I visualize it at least in my head. What do you love most about being a writer? The accomplishment. I'm someone who's very goal driven and so I really enjoy the sense of satisfaction of you know having had an idea which is this tiny kernel and then writing a draft and then I would prefer pr probably to write fewer drafts than I have to but getting to that end point of having a book that is finished and in your hands it is indescribable and the irony of me saying that talking about being a writer is I'm, <laughs> I'm quite aware of that but that for me that process of making something tangible and physical that is in people's hands from nothing you know and through that quite long process I I, I would say that, that you can tell a lot about me for the fact that I really struggle to have like an exercise routine I don't go to the gym ever but I've run a marathon like that was doable like I was like I'm going to run a marathon then I train for it so I really like a kind of long-term project that requires a lot of work and so novel writing suits me quite well um and then yeah and then you get to on the one hand you get to let the book go like I really enjoy that I don't need to think about what the world would look like without men anymore like I've done the work I've thought it through in so many different ways my brain doesn't have to think about it anymore but then it's such a joy to talk about the book with people and for them to tell me about the characters they connected with and to ask questions about different elements of the world and that's really excited while at the same time the writing bit of my brain is now on to the next thing fantastic what don't you like about being a writer? I think the amount of work that it takes to write something excellent, I just didn't know. I don't, I don't know if anyone really knows that. You know, if you said to me when I was 23, writing, sitting down to write my first novel that I was gonna finish, if you'd said to me, by the way, you're gonna have to write tens and tens and tens of thousands of words that will never make it into the book. And it's gonna take several big drafts and then lots and lots of editing to get this book to a point where it's on shelves, I'd have gone, first of all, I disagree. And I think I'm gonna write a perfect first draft because I was 23 and that's what I thought. But I, I, I'm kind of glad I didn't know that because I think it's just, it's so much work. I just don't think I ever realized how much work it takes to get something from idea to final honed, polished draft. But the, you know, the point where you're trying again to do this book again and make it right can feel a little bit soul destroying at times. Let's talk about Okay, so the Easter egg, so there's an Easter egg in the book, the Easter egg with, with Dr. Lisa Michael and the reference to um, The Handmaid's Tale, which is uh, written by Margaret Atwood, a Canadian author, and uh, Dr. Lisa Michael is a Canadian as well. So are there other Easter eggs hidden in the book? There are definitely quite a few author surnames. I think that finding like surnames for people is one of the hardest things to do when you're writing. It's like 11 o'clock at night. And I'm like, what am I gonna call this person who's called like Sophie, what's her surname? And there's also, I suppose there's political ones. I'm saying absolutely nothing about my own kind of political views, but one of the funnest things about Specfic is that you get to literally imagine the world as you want it. And so there's small things about like Scottish independence and the number of US states as well. Like those, I suppose, count, count as Easter eggs. Um, although I did, I found it very funny. I read someone's Goodread review. I'm, I'm a massive Goodreads user myself. So it's impossible for me to not read my Goodreads reviews because I'm constantly on Goodreads, like updating my reading challenge. But someone had thought that I chose the name Amanda for Amanda McLean because it was like a 
space man comma da is like a shortened version of dad and I was like sir are you okay that is absolutely not the case I just chose a woman's name that I thought was nice um so some things people think are easter eggs are actually just not at all it must be really gratifying to know that people are paying attention (laughs) they really are and also I'm like uh, by all means think that I am actually that clever and (laughs) what the book is that minutely planned but I'm afraid I just I just thought that Amanda was a name that made sense for a woman who was, you know, 45 in 2025, I'm afraid. So what do you do for downtime? I mean, so it's such a cliche, but I do read a lot. And I've, I have no belief in guilty pleasure reading. I think read, I think you should just read what you want to read. Um, and so what I read for fun is a lot of romance, both contemporary and historical. I read a lot of fantasy, including young adult fantasy and contemporary YA. Um, and that there is nothing gives me like more energy and spoons and like nourishes my soul more than just sitting down and blasting through a historical romance novel. Like I read 10 Things I Love About You by Julia Quinn two days ago, just read it in a night and felt restored. Um, and I spend a lot of time with my friends as well. Like that's a big thing. I'm really lucky. I have wonderful friends and family and especially like law. Actually, one of the things I like about law so much is that it's a very engaging job. Like you spend a lot of time talking to people and interacting with people, but writing is you do on your own so it's really nice you know, a kind of dreamy weekend to me is to balance spending time at home thinking about my book and writing and doing that stuff which is quite kind of insular and then heading off and you know having drinks at the pub with my friends it's a pretty dreamy combo do you read more than one book at a time I don't like to I I, I do now because I've got so look at the moment I've got like a book on the go for research for my work in progress and I've I find I don't know if you found this in the pandemic that's my attention span with books is not necessarily reduced but the threshold for a book to grab me is higher and so I've got a few books where I got like a chapter in and I went I'm just not like I like the stand by Stephen King I will read it but it's also a thousand pages I got 50 pages in and I was like this is just not gonna happen right now (laughs) so I like to have I like to be a book monogamist and just have one at a time one at a time but actually I found mid pandemic that I have my Goodreads, I think shows that I'm currently reading seven or eight books or something horrifying. So what are you reading right now? I'm reading Masterclass by Christina Dulker, who wrote Vox and it's really interesting. Um, it shows a world where kind of IQ and intelligence has become the sole thing really that is important in society in the US. And it's very dystopian and also one of those books where I've got it in my bag next to me and I'm just thinking about it. You know, I'm quite looking forward to getting home tonight to to pick it up again. Like I want to know what's going to happen. And I actually did an event with Christina Dulker a few weeks ago and she was so lovely. And I included her as a as a comp when I queried agents and it was a real full circle moment for me of like I was talking to her and she was so nice about the book and I was like I included Vox as a comp when I was querying agents like what is happening um so yes Masterclass as it's called in the US or it's called Q in the UK same book but I'm reading that and it's excellent wonderful well Christina thank you so much for your time I completely appreciate this I wish you the best success on the end of men it's really wonderfully constructed, rich characters. I was fully invested in all their lives and all their outcomes and bravo to you. It's well done and I look forward to whatever you're writing and producing next. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining me on What Were You Thinking? You can get The End of Men wherever books are sold. To listen to more episodes or to have a peek at my own books, visit my website, danagoldstein.ca
Okay, so you stuck around to the end of the episode. Yay, you! So here's the secret that Christina has revealed when I asked her the question, tell me something not a lot of people know about you. Tell me something not many people would know about you. Oh, what a good question. Um, So practically that I trained to be a classical harpist from a very, very, very young age. There you go. That's which is, which is a very niche way to spend one's um, childhood and adolescence. So I was going to be a musician. Like that's what I wanted to do. I was going to be a harpist. Um, but also that that's why I think I'm able to write books and have the very intense job that I have because all the way through my childhood and teenage years, I did school every day and I did homework and then I did like several hours of harp practice. Um, so there you go. There's like one picture of me playing the harp on my Instagram like two years ago, if you want to go back that far. Um, but yeah, I'm very good at playing the harp. 